pragmatism asks its usual question. Grant an idea or belief to be true, it says. What concrete difference will its being true make in anyone's actual life? How will the truth be realized? What experiences will be different from those which obtain if the belief was false? What, in short, is the truth's cash value in experimental terms? How does this truth help us to embrace the void? virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 174 of Embrace the Void, where we do what we must because we can. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're doing some delicious back-to-basics. So, let's make with the useful truths. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Joseph Clark, a journalist and critic currently embedded deep within philosophy Twitter. Joseph, would you like to say hi to the void? I would. Hello, void. Uh, it's great to have you on, Joseph. Uh, we've had Thank a you. lot of fun exchanges on Twitter. I really appreciate your your work on there um, and your analysis of various trends within philosophy. So I'm glad to, to finally get you on. Thank you. Very glad to be here and participate in the community in a more in a fuller way than I have before. So thank you. Yeah, great. So do you want to let folks know a little bit first about your background and how you came to be uh, embedded in philosophy Twitter and what you feel like you've maybe learned a little bit about philosophers as a result of your time with our uh, culture? Sure. Yes. So as an undergraduate at Marquette University. Um, I did take the requisite uh, three philosophy courses for my communications degree. Um, it was something that I profoundly enjoyed sort of reading and arguing about, uh, par pa in part because of the point in my life where I was. Uh, I had been raised Catholic, uh, gone through Catholic schools, uh, but around age 18, found uh, myself unable to believe any of it anymore. So I leaned into the sort of early stirrings of philosophical spe speculation mm -hmm. and curiosity that I felt 
and justified it on the idea that I might someday ask to be asked why I cared about being an ethical person uh, without uh, a divine mandate hanging over me. Mm-hmm. But uh, ethics is, I feel, caught up in everything else. So I was able to justify spending what spare time I had throughout college researching whatever philosophical problem or strand of thought that interested me. Mm-hmm. And that never went away after I gra- graduated. And <laughs> it was, yeah, a community I sought out and I was able to find Philosophy Twitter, which has people of sort of all levels of engagement and expertise uh, mm-hmm. in these things, everything from undergraduates to full professors to uh I don't want to say hobbyists like me, but people who do not do this for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, Or uh, I should say try to make a living because one thing that has become apparent about uh, philosophy as it is conducted today is the academic environment for that. It is not one that, is very supportive of researchers <laughs> at all, but the sort of most senior tenured level and uh, a lot sort of the graduate student and adjunct experience just feels like an encapsulation or a distillation of so many uh millennials right now in that we did what we were told to do. We sought out uh, education and have been paying our dues, but Mm -hmm. are just finding the institutions that were supposed to reward us have lost interest in rewarding us and letting us advance. And yeah, I just like it is yeah, I just really yeah. feel a lot of, as a freelance journalist, I just feel a lot of solidarity with adjuncts and grad students. Mm-hmm. So you, you've mm-hmm. picked up on maybe some of that um, concern, some of those those negative trends within the field that are probably sort of prevalent across academic fields at this point, but mm-hmm. are certainly sort of out and in front, it seems like. Um, with philosophy mm-hmm. and it is interesting I think probably for a variety of reasons on philosophy mm-hmm. Twitter you do get more you, you get more explicit sort of commentary about that um, from people who probably otherwise are very anxious to talk about that sort of stuff because they are caught up in that precarious game it seems like mm-hmm. yeah um, and yeah there's not just the uh, sort of economic privation mm-hmm. combined with the overwork, but um, a lot of people who I've spoken to, especially queer philosophers, have mm-hmm. just talked about how much more hostile philosophy is to them than any other department that they've department of a university they've worked in which is Mm -hmm. as 
surprising as it is distressing. Um, like a lot of introductions to philosophy will talk about Socrates and the need to question received wisdom, but there's just a lot of hostility that meets mm -hmm. uh, people trying to express themselves in ways that are unfamiliar to prior generations. Yeah, we've had similar comments from prior guests about things like disability uh, conversations as well. It does seem like in a, like a across the range of the kind of social justice issues that a lot of folks are addressing out there right now, it seems like philosophy mm -hmm. as a field is not just sort of passively lagging behind, but actively resisting on various fronts. Yeah, it's like the most, by far the most... Uh, male-dominated humanities mm -hmm. uh, uh, department or enterprise, I'm not sure what the exact word would be, uh, discipline. discipline. Yep. Um, and I would assume the same is of, true for, for racial um, yeah, homogeneity and, as well. Yeah, and race and gender are sort of treated as like non-central or sort of optional mm -hmm. uh, topics of discussion when they are in fact sort of like at the front and center of many people's lives in terms of their welfare and their ability to navigate society. And like if philosophical ethics is about, is in any way seriously committed to human welfare or fairness or justice, those would seem to be very important things. Mm -hmm. but they're treated as secondary at best. Yeah, I don't know if that's, like, the weirdest of that is is just the sort of standard resistance to change, or if it's that, like, folks like you and me who come at this world of philosophy from a primarily ethics perspective, you know, then sort of find it weird to have those ethics divorced from like the goings on of philosophical departments and the way that they seem to be in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's also hard because I think even where I do see individuals trying to be more progressive, they are then in turn running up against um, administrative challenges to that, that make it difficult funding issues and a variety of other things um, not mm -hmm. to sort of um, completely shunt off the responsibility, but it is, um, frustrating, like all the different levels that seem to be uh, inhibiting progress on these fronts. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about. So let's, let's shift to our main topic today. I wanted to have you on because you you followed up with me a little bit after uh, we did the the better know uh, Rorty episode a little while ago, um, and I thought it would be great to expand out from that discussion about Rorty to sort of more broadly a discussion around American pragmatism. Um, I know this that, that pragmatism is an idea that I think a lot of folks are interested in, but often have a variety of kind of misconceptions about it. Um, and you have done sort of a good bit of work, even as a uh, technically non-philosopher, that I, I would personally classify you as a philosopher, because I, I believe oh, that anyone who... Well, I, I, don't, don't <laughs> take it as a compliment. I think that anybody uh, who spends <laughs> too much time thinking about anything counts as a philosopher, and I gather that you spend too much time oh, thinking about some things at least. So. Far too much, uh, yes. Yeah. 
So, um, so let's talk about your understanding around American pragmatism. And I, you know, we'll caveat this with, of course, um, this is, you know, one individual's interpretation and all everything is up for debate and people have written dissertations about why you're wrong about X, Y, Z. Um, but what would you say, sort of, if you could give an elevator pitch for American pragmatism, what would you say the view is? Yeah. Uh, so again, it is a very contested term and, uh, Adrian Rutt, uh, was the person, uh, Aaron, you would have spoken to on mm -hmm. that episode. Coincidentally, uh, we happen to know each other in real life. Uh, we're both based out of the greater Cleveland area. Uh, he teaches at Cleveland State University, and the two of us have hosted, uh, co-hosted several events with the Western Reserve Philosophical Association, which is uh, the... Northeast Ohio chapter of the public philosophy group, Sophia. Mm -hmm. uh, and despite uh, all of those points of contact between us, Adrian and I uh, come from pragmatism from two different angles. So starting with the etymology, uh, pragmatism obviously, well, not obviously, is uh, derived from practice. The American pragmatists of the late 19th century did not term, uh, coin the term, but before they adopted it, semi-ironically, it mm. referred to a sort of low Machiavellian, grubby cunningness, mm. uh, just that is concerned about getting the job done and not caring uh who's done or uh, what's done or whose fingers get broken doing it. Mm -hmm. But in the sense of practice appeal to the pragmatists, they saw themselves as continuous with the empiricist tradition of uh, primarily English speaking philosophy, but rather than the sort of passive recipients of experience for them experience was an active process undertaken by agents embedded in environments including social environments hmm. so knowledge for the pragmatists was answerable to experiments in living broadly construed not just observation but the actual process of intervening in the world and engaging in uh, means and reasoning to mm -hmm. uh, evaluate theories or ideas as better or worse uh, than others broadly construed. So it's interesting the way you describe that. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's funny because it harkens back to what we were just saying about sort of the elitism or issues within philosophy that there has and always seems like has been you know various kinds of distinctions between the higher and the lower philosophies in this kind mm -hmm. of way and like mm -hmm. specific theories within different so first of all there's the like you know epistemology and things and logic or true philosophy ethics down there in the mud with the human beings and such um and then like 
uh, even within epistemology that there are sort of the grubby versions that are like functionalist approaches to knowledge that mm -hmm. don't get at sort of the true uh, pure forms of knowledge in this kind of way. It's funny though that amongst the ones that are considered kind of grubby is this kind of empiricism, which I think many, you know, outside of philosophy would argue like the empirical ideas and the scientific method that arises out of them, the scientific methods, I should say, that arise out of them are like some of the greatest advancements that philosophy has brought to the world. Um, and so it's funny that they are sort of looked down upon within uh, the field in this kind of way. Um, do you want to say a little bit about like, which who the folks are that are looking down upon this kind of approach to things and like how the pragmatists are reacting to them some yeah sure the first example that would spring to mind would be uh it's not going to be the enlightening ground that gets me canceled it's going to be this that gets me canceled um <laughs> i would say it is a easy point of contrast to pragmatists are kantian ethicists who mm. think by the sort of more or less a priori examination of the structure of rational agency, we can derive substantive and binding uh, ethical principles, whereas a pragmatist would argue that uh, agency itself is something that is bound up with uh, socialized understandings of what is valuable, what is rational, and is not something that we can, and ethics is not something we can figure out on our mm -hmm. own in principle because it always happens in a social context and this thing we call ethics is a attempt to live together as well as possible while also figuring out what as well as possible means uh it's always a sort of mm -hmm. trial and error process uh we can always take on new perspectives uh weight perspectives differently, conduct new experiments in living, and it is not the sort of thing that can ever be finished, let alone deduced for mm -hmm. all rational beings in all times and all places. Well, I definitely agree that you're going to get canceled for that, so I appreciate you um, putting your putting yourself out there in that way. Um, mm -hmm. No, I'm... So that's, that's interesting to me as someone who I think meta-ethically fits in between those two views in some mm -hmm. awkward and probably not actually functional way where, mm -hmm. like, you know, I simultaneously resist the idea that that like you can do a science of ethics that will like measure and quantify various sort of you know ethical approaches and figure out like what the right one is in a demonstrable kind of way in that kind of sense um, mm -hmm. but I also think that like I can reasonably 
infer in a way that like slavery is wrong and no amount of like people trying to present evidence to the contrary i think is ever going to undermine my belief in that particular claim it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that is bound up with observation in the way that i think of you know things like the speed of light as being bound up in observation so i feel like i i get stuck somewhere in the middle between those views i don't know what do you do you feel like i should be just committing myself to one or the other here uh no there that has uh always been a concern for pragmatism not uh sometimes it's a concern sometimes it's an objection uh a contemporary of john dewey a pragmatist of the first half of the 20th century rudolph born i want to say mm-hmm Randolph Byrne. Uh, so a contemporary of uh, John Dewey, a pragmatist from the first half of the 20th century, argued that the sort of open-endedness of the sort of experimental ethics that Dewey was proposing uh, more or less redefined uh, ethics out of existence because mm-hmm. if we if there was no sort of non-negotiable ends that we cannot sacrifice then we're always just sort of moving the goalposts for ourselves and redefining ethics until it is just a word that does not mean anything i'm curious is that sort of similar um in some ways to the way that the argument is run sometimes that there has to be some things that have non-instrumental value because if everything only has instrumental value then it never grounds out as anything actually having any value yes uh that is probably a even a more succinct version of what i was attempting to say uh but to a degree i think the pragmatists can mitigate this problem by taking a kind of uh, Neurath's boat approach to uh, ethics. Do you want to explain that one for folks? I do, I do, yes. Uh, So uh, Quine picked up from uh, one of the logical empiricists, uh, uh, Neurath, the metaphor of science as a uh, older boat that we has leaks that we must repair uh, as we're sailing it and Mm -hmm. we have no option to dry dock and Mm. build uh, build a new boat from scratch or uh, from the bottom bottom up we have to stand on we have to keep the boat intact enough so that we have sturdy planks to stand on even as we're removing other planks, which are rotten or cracked or not working for us. So, so the so if we, uh-huh. yeah. No, I was going to say, so basically science is the ship of Theseus is the best case scenario that like, that's, that's the optimistic version. Yeah, that's the optimistic version. Uh-huh. Um, but from an ethical perspective, it would be that we have at any given time, ethical commitments that we are unwilling to compromise and 
mm. our pursuit of those goals. Mm-hmm. So it's like that there are sort of foundational planks of our ethics that we don't pull right. out while we're redoing all the other stuff. Right. Yes. And mm-hmm. from that perspective, we may tear up a lot of the boat around us. We might find ourselves mm-hmm. with different commitments from when, from where we start. Uh, but it will always be able, like if we stand on one board to pull mm-hmm. out another, we can stand on the board we put in to pull out the first one. Um, there, it's at least possible that mm. we can sort of, uh, to use the phrase from Wittgenstein, sort of uh, toss away the ladder after we've climbed it, mm-hmm. that we can move from a starting position to a new location where we can see that we were mistaken to begin with. Uh, I actually have a quote in front of me, a fragment of a quote of Mm -hmm. Dewey in front of me. Uh, Judging at some point runs against the brute act of holding something dear as its limit. Uh, So to use the Mm -hmm. spatial metaphor, to extend the spatial metaphor of a limit, uh, when we move the limit or the horizon moves around us, but we always have to occupy some perspective. Interesting. So, so there's a little bit there, I think of, you know, I wouldn't call it like having your cake and eating it too, so much as like, we're all in philosophy, I think, trying to balance out the competing desires. So we, we want our system to be flexible enough to incorporate new information, but at the same time, resilient enough that certain deeply held principles are not going to be accidentally cast away at some point. Yes. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And the downside to this in like actually existing pragmatism is some thinkers uh, like Dewey or the contemporary Deweyan Philip Kitcher can conflate uh, doing ethics with doing public policy. Mm -hmm. Um, Dewey was very committed to uh, democracy as a political ideal. And when he talks about uh, communities coming together to work out their interests, it is usually in the policy, uh, usually in the context of working out some sort of formal uh, institutional arrangement, whereas mm-hmm. like most conventional ethics will be about sort of uh, politics and ethics will or at least will be more disentangled uh, but there is the sort of tendency in pragmatism to conflate ethical and political issues now there is surely a high degree of overlap between right. political political and ethical concerns uh, but one mistake a lot of that Mm -hmm. pragmatists are especially vulnerable to is not recognizing that elements even when they overlap can be distinguished yeah and that one makes sense in particular especially if they 
tend to be seeing things heavily in kind of applied terms on the ground kind of terms when you think about where is ethics you know playing out most in the world you could argue Mm -hmm. that a lot of it takes the form of policy in that applied sense so i think it's understandable that they would to some extent and like i'm i'm one who tends to say that like politics is really just ethics at scale so i am sympathetic to the close connection between those things but i could also see why that could present some difficulties in terms of doing the more theoretical aspects um separate from how they will play out in in a particular policy scenario um mm-hmm. and this this all seems you know my understanding is limited right but uh my sense is that uh pragmatism isn't actually in a lot of cases so much about just ethics even though that's something that you and i are very interested in but that these are sort of um outcroppings of deeper conversation what they would consider deeper conversations about theories of knowledge and, and like you were mentioning earlier about um that this a lot of this is a corrective to approaches towards knowledge do you want to maybe maybe we could back up a little bit and like yeah. explain what because i think in your introduction that you sent me you gave a couple of different potential ways that we could understand the pragmatic view of knowledge some of which are more popularized but less accurate and maybe we could clear distinguish those a little bit first uh yes uh so the uh a resource that i put together after a few people asked me uh, how they could introduce themselves to pragmatism is uh pragmatism an opinionated introduction uh it's a google doc of important landmark publications in the history of pragmatism and also secondary sources which contextualize them and also some sort of further introductory brief a few paragraphs of introductory material by myself Mm -hmm. um and uh it is structured historically uh beginning with uh in the uh later 19th century boston around Harvard, uh, a sort of gentleman's discussion society called the Metaphysical Club. Uh, uh. And again, there's a lot of uh, half-ironic trolling in the early history of pragmatism mm-hmm. because um, one of the sort of uh, objects of constant concern to metaphysical clubbers like uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., the jurist, and mm-hmm. William James, the Harvard psychologist, was uh, the then new uh, Darwinian theory of evolution. James was only a uh, medical student when uh, The Origin of Species was published. But he was a very early adopter. And as an early researcher in psychology, he distinguished himself from what is now called the structuralist school, which sort uh, sort of took a reductive approach to the study of consciousness by which uh, they would develop increasingly refined Uh, methods of introspection to try to isolate uh, what we would now call qualia Mm -hmm. and just describe their structure and the circumstances under which they arise. Whereas 
James comes in with a Darwinian perspective and asks, why do humans and other animals have the mental states that we do? And he sought to make that continuous uh, in answering the question. He wanted to answer that it Mm -hmm. was continuous with Darwinian biology. Uh, So so you're saying he's to blame for evolutionary psychology? uh, Unfortunately, yes. If if, if, uh, all sorts of reasons, uh, James can be canceled for (laughs) for, uh, relativism, for Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology, just most most cancelable that's ironic the... since most modern evolutionary psychologist advocates are the opposite of relativists mm-hmm. uh yeah but um yeah he was not in the business of positing like specific modules mm-hmm. uh for like narrowly tailored behaviors the way a lot of self-described evolutionary psychologists will be uh but sort of the basic uh, drives just the point mm-hmm. of having beliefs and desires and affective emotional reactions was to pilot the organism through life and uh, allow it to uh, survive and reproduce as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big break from the kind of pure rational agent seeking unadulterated truth model that uh, we were dealing with in in epistemology prior to that sort of period of scientific revelation yes uh there was Mm -hmm. this sort of recognition that if we sort of emerged from brutes as they were called in the 19th century then it was not impossible to achieve sort of uh, metaphysical knowledge of things that are universal and necessary, but that they those are sort of latecomers to epistemology, mm. that our sort of basic faculties are geared towards uh, navigating our environments, making peace with uh the individuals we're interacting with most and it's only through philosophical and scientific extensions of our capabilities mm-hmm. uh, that we are able to uh, broaden the scope of our knowledge to potentially the metaphysical mm-hmm. later on so, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of some pragmatists will try to do with metaphysics altogether uh, arguing that uh, any sort of empirically equivalent metaphysical systems are ultimately saying the same thing. So there's, mm-hmm. it's just a sort of level of inquiry that invents uh, problems for itself that mm-hmm. we can never answer. Uh, that is the sort of Richard, that's where Richard Rorty ultimately ends up, and we may be able to get to him. But <laughs> as a tradition, pragmatism has never been committed one way or the other to specific metaphysical claims. Uh, it has mm-hmm. more, it has distinguished itself more by a sort of 
orientation or attitude uh, towards the practical. Interesting. So what is this? So where does this leave us then for an account of knowledge? I know sort of the rough and tumble version that people use when they talk about pragmatism is to say that knowledge is in some way equivalent to what is practical or useful. And given the kind of James evolutionary account you just provided, you could see how somebody could sort of slip into thinking that knowledge is whatever, like the most functional heuristics for survival tend to produce or something like that. Um, Do you feel like that is where, we want to leave things with this this sort of notion of knowledge, or do you feel like they they go beyond that in some meaningful way? Um, I feel like they do go beyond that meaningfully. So, one of the first statements of pragmatism was uh, not by James, but by uh, Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, he was a practicing scientist, but not an academic except for a brief period uh, until he was found out to be having an extramarital affair and uh, the resultant scandal, this being the 19th century, cost him the only academic job he ever had and he ended up spending the rest of his life running from debtors and dying in poverty. So That's cancel culture for you right there. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So his original statement of pragmatism, the pragmatic maxim runs, consider what effects which might conceivably have practical bearings we conceive the object of our conception to have, then our conception of those effects is the whole of our conception of the object. So (laughs) Peirce originally developed the thesis to talk about concrete matters of fact that one might encounter in the laboratory. Like he uses the example Mm -hmm. of a diamond when we talk about its hardness. Uh, So the concept of hardness involves how the diamond would behave under various circumstances. We could put it under, like it would retain its shape under pressure up to uh, such and such a degree uh, that it will scratch implements made of other materials but and not be scratched itself Mm -hmm. Uh, but james tried to run with the maxim um basically as far as it would take him and apply it to areas of human life which are not so explicitly bound up with empirical matters of fact like uh, ethics, mm-hmm. religion, and for him, coherence becomes a sort of important secondary principle to what we might call uh, correspondence, which we find mm-hmm. in Pierce. Uh, there's always been a fraught relationship between the pragmatists and correspondence. Um, you mean the, your correspondence between our belief and the world itself or something like that? Yeah, yes. Uh, there's, yeah, yes. Or as I've learned on Twitter, the one correct theory of truth is the, the correspondence model, right? Yes. And there's just always in pragmatism a sort of lack of satisfaction with, 
well, I shouldn't say always, but there is a lack of satisfaction with the idea that uh, snow is white means is true means snow is white. Uh, there is, at least in the first generation of pragmatists, a desire to know what that correspondence relation amounts to. And for Peirce, it is sort of the ability to indefinitely, experimentally verify a claim. Um, but James will come in and talk about how uh, in the sort of manifold of experience, we can receive conflicting information and mm -hmm. what ultimately drives us to inquiry, whether philosophical or scientific, is the desire to reconcile truths that do not obviously sit well with each other. Um, in his uh, lecture series, Pragmatism, for example, he considers the idea of the absolute, which mm -hmm. uh, in among his contemporaries, like jo Josiah Royce, uh, was taken to be something more than just the sort of more respectable Hegel that we get today, just the idea that there's a rationality in the progression of the history ideas where uh, one epoch is responding to what happened in the last one and the state and that sets the stage for reconciliation. Um, mm -hmm. But there was a more uh, theologically conservative strand of a Hegelianism uh, prevalent in James's time, which essentially yokes the absolute with the idea of divine providence and the uh, expectation that real uh, history is tending towards more mm -hmm. and more perfect justice and local harms uh, are opportunities for goodness to exert itself. And James says there's nothing like self-contradictory in this idea, but hmm. when we consider it in broader in the broader context of what we know to be true, uh, it becomes less and less tenable. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the Royce and other absolutists would talk about like the inherent oneness of reality in a sort of spinozistic sense. But uh, James was a big believer in individuals and the sort of power of individual idiosyncrasy to assert itself in the world. So, and the divergence of ends in nature struck him as incompatible with a picture of a unified purpose to existence like mm -hmm. the rabbit and the fox yeah the rabbit and the fox are going to disagree about what is best uh so even though the absolute would 
afford us uh, consolations like the idea, what he calls a moral holiday, just sort of the mm -hmm. idea that there can be an end or a rest for ethical exertions and things can still work themselves out in the end. Uh, mm -hmm. We ultimately have to reject that. That's really interesting. I, we need to definitely do more Hegel on this show. I apologize for folks who are like not following this. I'm barely able to to keep up with what you're talking about here, and I think that's um, something we need to do some some backfilling on there. But I try oh, yeah. to get at what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Some um, another example that might help folks a little bit to understand. Um, sort of how this pragmatism stuff cashes out. You mentioned in that intro that you would include um, Putnam's critique of the fact-value divide as a kind of piece of or form of pragmatism. Do you want to unpack that a little bit and how, how you see that being a kind of pragmatic challenge to a traditional understanding of um, sort of the relationship between um, uh, evaluative claims and the world? Yes. Uh, so there are two directions from which uh, Putnam attacks the fact-value distinction. One, in following Dewey, uh, he notes that we often treat value judgments as factual judgments. Hmm. Um, like when we describe social states of affairs that... Uh, as like, well, he was dishonest. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not only making a claim about what transpired, but unable to competently use the phrase dishonest. We have to sort of understand its ethical import in the among the mm -hmm. aims and goals of the people in the relevant situation another example might be like a broken limb or something right when you describe yes. someone as being ill or something you are making evaluative judgments that are, are or you're making um value-laden factual judgments we could say yeah uh like there's a difference between like a bone that is split and a broken mm -hmm. bone um a split bone is just a bone in two pieces whereas a broken bone is a bone that cannot fulfill its function as a bone. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't like support weight. It causes pain and inflammation for uh, whoever's unfortunate enough to carry it around. Mm -hmm. The other strategy is to remark that judgments of fact usually involve value-laden terms like mm -hmm. probability we will talk well logic itself is arguably mm -hmm. normative like we can talk about uh, an inference being valid or invalid sound or unsound and that we have various obligations to believe valid and such things or valid sound arguments and such that uh, yeah, there is a normative yes connection yeah. to our epistemology epistemology is fundamentally normative as well yes like rationality, soundness, arguably even like statistically significant are all terms that in a non-spooky way seem to point at their effectiveness in our attempts to get a grip on our situations. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I know we're going to get a little short on time here. I'm curious, can you maybe help out a little bit with what are sort of maybe just the major, the most significant objection that you feel like pragmatism has faced or continues to wrestle with um, in any of this? Yeah, I don't want to repeat myself, but I sort of feel like the Randolph Burns goalpost moving argument is the objection that pragmatists, mm-hmm. especially in, when they're wearing their ethic ethicist hats, are most vulnerable to. Mm-hmm. That the idea that we might just say that the most achievable goals are those that we ought to prioritize morally, where whereas we might be foregoing greater goods by mm-hmm. sort of settling in where we are. And yeah, that, and, mm-hmm. and uh, again, to repeat myself, that that can be looked at as either a problem or an opportunity for the pragmatist. Like, Mm-hmm. We never suspect that we will achieve the equilibrium between all uh, the goals of everyone in a society or uh, the biosphere or the uh, mm-hmm. intragalactic federation of planets. <laughs> it's a yeah. project without a def- without an endpoint by its very nature. I mean, that's something that I definitely am sympathetic to from an ethics perspective where I think, you know, it would be lovely if we could lock in our goals now and call it a day, right? And then the rest of the work was just like fine-tuning how to basically target those locked-in goalposts. But there is a sense in which you do want the the, pro, the project of knowledge to have moving goalposts in a like non-fallacious kind of way because – you know, otherwise you just get stuck, you know, punting towards phrenology forever. Hmm. Um, so like there, you want it to be like just the right, like, so you, so you end up creating a system of like increasingly sophisticated methods of moving the goalposts that like minimizes the harm of moving it too quickly or moving it um, in, in sort of uncritical kinds of ways. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's really interesting. So other things I want to ask you about here, are there, any particular pragmatists who you would say, if somebody wanted to take a swing at reading a primary source, um, that you would say are among the more readable for non-academic philosophy type folks who, who you know might want to just try to pick something up? I would, yes. Um, and conveniently, I have consolidated a lot of them in my opinionated introduction. Uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can. Are, are they, are the, they um, the categorized for readability? Could you do like, um, do like a oh, yeah. skiing thing where oh, yeah. it's like, like black diamonds or the, the ones to stay away from? Oh, yeah. Like uh, right now, I will just give a few recommendations. Uh, there are four essays by uh, Charles Peirce that were his original statement of pragmatism, but also appeared in uh, Popular Science Monthly. So they were uh, always written in mind for a general audience, as was uh, James' book, which is simply called Pragmatism, uh, subtitled A Mm -hmm. New Name for Some Old Ways of Thinking, which was a series of lectures in which he sort of announced the ethical and 
religious applications of the pragmatic method that he was urging. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those would be the first two books of the first generation I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just been such an explosion of uh, ways in which people have developed pragmatist ideas in subsequent generations. Uh, Hilary Putnam, as you mentioned, has some very accessible books uh, like Reason, Truth, and History and the Collapse of the Fact-Value Dichotomy that mm-hmm. uh, are very amenable to the things that I've been talking about for most of our time. Great. Is there anyone who you'd recommend staying away from? Any Black Diamonds who you'd say avoid until you've uh, practiced a little bit? Uh, definitely Robert Brandom. He is the most Hegel-y of the uh, contemporary pragmatists and also mm-hmm. uh, sort of the most intimidatingly in the weeds of like formal logic and semantics. Uh, uh-huh. I, yeah, I was uh, I was constructing a joke a while back about readability, and he was, I think, the, the the most highly recommended, even above Kant, for being the the least recommendable person to have in a punchline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and not only resources. is his work, and not only is his work dense, but it's extremely long. Like, mm-hmm. if you browse philosophy Twitter, there are all these jokes about a spirit of trust. His most recent book being a doorstop, and it, mm-hmm. it's frightening. Okay. Well, fair enough. I think that's some useful material to get folks started on that. Uh, Is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, the world of pragmatism before I put the screws to you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Just uh, on philosophy Twitter, I would recommend uh, looking up uh, my my esteemed colleague, Adrian Rutt, uh, also uh, Jeffrey Howard and uh, Hayden Bruce. Uh, They have their own podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, interview mostly other pragmatists, but also people from other perspectives. And yeah, they're really good. You should ch- check them out. Cool, great. Well, uh, I'll try to make sure to include all those in the show notes. All right, well, then enough stalling. Let's go for the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So you, as a uh, listener of the show, will know how this works. But for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. And you're going to tell me, are those things real or not real? You do not get to hedge. uh, You do not get to explain your answers in any way. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Is anything real? Yes. All right. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Not real. Mm-hmm. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Selves are not real, but persons are. <laughs> okay, fine. You're going to force us to asterisk that one. It's fair. Uh, mm-hmm. I try to clarify things and philosophers unclarify them. Uh, genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Not real. Mm. Morality? Real. Rights? Not real. Knowledge? Real, especially Mm. knowledge how. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, God or gods? 
Not real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? Real. Interesting. My One of my favorite. Um, <laughs> holes, as in a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Not real. Mm. Beauty? Not real. Love? Real. Very interesting. Causality? Real. And finally, time. Real, but possibly not the passage of time. Mm, okay. You, I feel like you practiced. Did you, were you doing like, like training yourself for this? I feel like you were, you were in I the have, zone there. You yes. have been like standing uh, just, in front of a yeah. mirror, just running it through in your head. <laughs> yeah. Just listening to enough episodes <laughs> and uh, just sort of planning up. We had, we've been talking about me coming on for a long while, so mm-hmm. I have been thinking seriously for a while about how I would answer these questions. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I almost feel like I cheated. But... It's a little bit, but it's okay. I understand. Mm-hmm. You, can, you know, it's the one thought too many. You can't resist. I get mm-hmm. it. Um, it is it is funny to me. It, it, at some points, I think about switching up this activity if it becomes sort of something that everybody has figured out their answers to already. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it, it was certainly uh, amusing. And, and many of your answers, I thought, were quite interesting, um, despite your lack of uh, vocalized suffering, which is the <laughs> reason I think some people do show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, so, but fun yeah, stuff. Sorry, sorry to disappoint the sadists and schadenfreude junkies out there, but... It's cruel of you. That's mm-hmm. okay. I'll just have to get a more un, uh, unwitting victim for the next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun, Joseph. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff one more time? Uh, sure. Yes. My Twitter handle is Clark Joseph F. C-L-A-R-K-J-O-S-E-P-H F. And yeah, I will, by the time uh, this goes up, I will have the opinionated introduction linked in my pinned tweet if you want to check that out. Great. Looking forward to it. And I hear you've got a review of Kate Mann's new book coming out at some point here soon that folks should keep an eye out for. They should. Yes. Uh, More details on that forthcoming. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a, a useful primer, I think, on... Uh, and often, I think, misunderstood term. Oh, well, thank you. Glad, glad for the opportunity. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patron, M. Jason, and to Petrosaurus Hex, uh, Piter, and Gretchen Coach for increasing their pledges. And thanks to our Archon and Archduke-level patrons, Fix the Vote, I Want to Be the Tempe in a Foucault and Camus Sandwich, Chad T, Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks, Dave Maslich, and The Eyes That Haunt My Dreams. Thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And 
If you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, I cannot stress this enough. You are the void and the void is you.